Welcome to Human Factors Cast, your weekly podcast for all things human factors, psychology, and design. Hey, it's episode 195. Today is February 25th, 2021. This is Human Factors Cast. I'm your host, Nick Rome. And I'm joined over there by Mr. Blake Arnsdorf. Does it not blow your mind, Nick, that we're already basically two months gone in 2021? When you said February 25th, I couldn't even believe that was the date. That's nuts, man. How are you? I cannot believe that either, Blake. Um, It kind of blows my mind that we've been in this pandemic for nearly a year now, and um, the the numbers, they blend together, but they're also so surprising whenever you look at them. I've seen all the memes that say, Oh, you know, March 2021 is upon us, and it's been a year already. It's kind of crazy, right? I'm good. How are you yeah, with all this It's It's stuff? definitely interesting. Uh, it's hard to believe that it's been a year, but, you know, overall, I'm feeling pretty good. I'm glad to be good. on YouTube again doing this. This is fun. It's a nice little break throughout the week every time. Yes, I'll get to that in just a second. We have an excellent news story this week. Uh, We're going to be taking some questions from the community. This week, we're going to be talking about scientists finding a way to communicate with dreaming people. Um, And like Blake mentioned, we are on YouTube again. We are doing a pre-show and a post-show on YouTube. So if you want a little bit more Human Factors cast in your life, uh, that is the place to go. Uh, You can also join us on Patreon for a little bit extra as well. Um, But... You know, the YouTube stuff we're, we're trying out, we're we're branching out and doing a little bit more. Uh, this week on the pre-show, we talked a little bit about some electronics projects, um, K-pop, and OnlyFans. So if you if you want to join that kind of discussion, <laughs> <laughs> that's what we're talking about. That's Over an there opening on the YouTube for the pre-show. Hey, man, we were talking about K-pop, OnlyFans, and, you know, electronics, just the typical well, stuff. You and your purple light, man. I mean, That's so funny. What purple light? There's no purple light. You can check on YouTube. There's no purple OnlyFans. Oh, there was. There was. All right. Uh, all right. Um, so, Blake, what, what's going on in your world, though? Because we, we talked before the show, but I want to know what kind of fun things you got going on. Oh, the fun stuff. Man, uh, I don't know. I'm still, like, falling deeply in the rabbit hole of the drum world of just, like, I think – too many things that I'm doing are all consumed by drums. Because uh, like I've got like practice pads throughout the house now. I have my kit that's actually in in what used to be the closet, so I can play that throughout the evening and day when it's all right with the neighbors. Uh, but that's I wanted to actually tie that into something that I found that I thought might be a useful resource for other people. Um, and I, I'll go ahead and preface it now. It has nothing to do specifically with human factors, but it's a podcast called Drum with Mike and Eddie. And this specific one is all about networking. And it just had a bunch of interesting tidbits inside of it that I thought, although we're, we don't particularly work in the music industry and this is much more science technology focused, they posed a lot of interesting ideas that I think in a virtual world can be really helpful. So I encourage people to go check that out. But the biggest thing and biggest takeaway that I heard is basically creating space to offer yourself like either offer your services up to other people or just creating space to have conversations with different people. So one of those things that I've been kind of figuring out how to work into my schedule is doing things like open office hours on Twitch or something like that so that I can actually create a space where, you know, either all of my students can hop in and talk to me about like and ask questions about UX stuff that we do or like things that we're working through in our course or whatever it might be. Um, but it's it's something that I think is 
would be useful in such a virtual setting to either set up small Zoom calls with people that you're interested in talking to um, or whatever whatever kind of works for you. But it's it's definitely something that I also want to try and bring to Human Factors Cast because I just like behind the scenes as well, Nick and I have talked about like how do we kind of create a little bit more for our community beyond just Slack and Patreon. Um, so hopefully we'll we'll see some different things like that coming in the future. But it's a cool podcast to check out just for some of the like the business side of what you can bring to your own life. But that's that's kind of my life in a nutshell right now. Just working, doing drum stuff, playing guitar a little bit. But what's going on with you, Nick? Man, that was a fantastic tease. Thank you for teasing us about what's to come with some of the Human Factors Cast stuff. Yeah. Really excited about what's what what we got in the in the uh, hopper. What's the <laughs> anyway? Um, I'm good, man. I so I had a, an experience that I just thought was um, something that was uh, very thoughtful. Um, and so I was on LinkedIn the other day, and I clicked on um, someone who I was looking up, and. Um, what was interesting about that is that uh, there was uh, w- when I clicked on that person's profile on LinkedIn, the messaging um, little bubble in the bottom right corner popped up and and it sorted automatically the people that I knew in common with this person. So those connections were first on the um, on the messaging part. Right. So so basically I click on this second connection um page and then the the chat pops up with hey these people know this person so you can message these people and get in touch with them about this person i thought i thought that was just so genius um and it's like one of those very very little um touches but extremely effective right because then i could reach out to any one of these people that are connected to this person and i could say hey do you know this person like how do you know this person blah 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 um and uh you know it would have been it was great. So I, I don't know. I just, that's, that's very small banter, but it was uh, incredibly useful. So just think about some of those like uh, nice to have um, sort of pleasant uh, user experience, human factors twists on something, you know, the, the, what are they, what do they call them in the UX world? Delightful interactions. Oh my goodness. I had um, like a whole, I think <laughs> 30 minute conversation with somebody yesterday about that. And like, cause I was restruck, I was helping them kind of write their story their story for their portfolio right and it was getting away from like using just that terminology because i think there's more descriptive ways or certainly for this specific person that's so talented i was like you don't use the buzz phrase use stuff that's very descriptive of you but no you're right man i mean and that's so cool because that there's plenty of times that like i'll be looking on linkedin and want to talk to somebody um, because i've like either read articles or books of theirs or heard them on a podcast or whatever it might be I'm like, uh, the cold LinkedIn messaging for me, it just doesn't yeah. feel good. Uh, like I would rather yeah. have somebody that can connect me with them. Um, and so LinkedIn doing that for you is so sick because that just takes so much of like trying to figure out like, can I, can I get like to the seven people that might know this person? Um, so that's awesome. I'm glad they're doing yeah. kind of small UI changes like that to make life easier, especially in a world where everything's so virtual that those little helpers are pretty sweet. Yeah, I just I thought it was uh, just incredibly um it wasn't even something I was thinking about like you know it's just a, this random person that I clicked on that I was looking to see what their relation was uh to something else that happened. Um and I noticed that I had some connections with them and I was like, "Oh, yeah, no. I I could reach out to them and literally ask them for a connection with this person." And uh I didn't, but 
I, I could have, and it was very easy to do so. So anyway, um, all right. Well, why don't we go ahead and get into this next part of the show? Yes, this is the part of the show all about human factors news. This is where we talk about everything related to the field of human factors. It could be anything. Uh, we got a little medical in there. Uh, as long as it relates to the field of human factors, it is fair game for us to sit here and talk about on a weekly basis. Blake, what do we got up this week? Oh, this is so cool because we're talking a little bit about lucid dreaming and communicating with people while they're dreaming. So the veil between the dream world and reality may be a little bit thinner than we thought. So in a new study released Last Thursday, scientists in our four countries say they've shown it's possible to communicate with people while they're lucid dreaming, at least some of the time. The dreamers were able to actually reportedly respond back to yes or no questions while dreaming and even answer simple math problems through facial and eye movements. And afterwards, some participants were even able to recall hearing the questions being asked during their dream. So it's commonly thought that when we sleep, it's cr- it's a crucial time for us to be able to store and remember things. So store memories that we created throughout the day. Uh, and many people are familiar with the one-way communication with a sleeping person, as a sleepwalk, as sleepwalking or sleep talking, sleep talking, are common phenomenon. But researchers re- have reasoned that it should be possible to have two-way communication and be able to recall these kinds of conversations. They also theorize that this communication could be induced and replicated under the right conditions in the lab, which would be great for future sleep research. Man, that's so crazy that you would be able to not just like hear or not just be talking to somebody while you're asleep, but actually maybe even be able to converse or you know pull things out of their, their subconscious, if you will, and have conversations. It's just kind of mind-blowing. Yeah, so they're they're doing this from uh, a couple different ways, right? So they're they're giving a couple different stimuli in. They're speaking words to them, uh, beeping tones, flashing lights, giving them tactile stimuli, and out out you know the communication from the participant results in eye movements or facial contractions, right? Um, and this is very interesting from from this perspective because uh, yeah, it's it's that two way communication. And while the you know questions that they're asking are pretty simple. Um, you know, you you can kind of really uh, w- like this thing. This thing really makes me wonder if you can start to communicate more with like locked in syndrome uh, patients or something like that, where um, you know you're in a coma and and you know mobility is limited. So I don't know. Um, I, I think this is cool, man. This is a really really cool article. Yeah, it's really interesting. I wonder if that like because they they focus obviously on lucid dreaming, right? So for somebody like me, who I don't even know, especially based off of the data that I collect on myself when I'm sleeping and like in comparison with exercise data and things like that, I actually don't really hit REM or like deep sleep very often. So I wonder if that would, you know, be one impacting my ability to create and store memories because that's this lucid dreaming state is really pivotal for that. But even being able to, you know, in some of these studies be one of those participants that can, you know, recall fewer questions or recall fewer or answer fewer math problems correctly or whatever it may be. Because if you can't get to those deeper areas of sleep, I wonder how that kind of affects just overall being in general and then your way to be able to communicate back and forth in this kind of two-way sense, if you will. Yeah, you do bring up a great point. So they actually had to train all these subjects um, on how to begin a lucid dream um, and they did this by playing a certain sound while they were sleeping. So the only way I've I've kind of um, 
heard about lucid dreaming, and I know there are plenty of methods, but the one the one that's worked for me, um, and I've only done it a handful of times, you know, because it takes a lot of effort uh, to to lucid dream when you are. Um, when you're trying to do that, right? So, so the the method that's worked for me is you kind of focus on a pinpoint of light in your mind's eye, whatever, and you know you slowly walk towards it and do kind of this uh, self meditation that relaxes your whole body and effectively puts your body to sleep. And as you do that, you inch closer and closer to this light. And as you come out of the light, you imagine a landscape. You know, for me, it's a it's a beach. So you're coming out of a cave, you're on the beach, and you focus on the sensory things um, that are in that area right so like the the uh sand between your toes the smell of the ocean the breeze on your skin you know so you focus on the tactile things and that kind of brings you into it and then from there you can move anywhere you want because you're in control of your lucid dream now uh this is this is something completely different they're actually playing a sound and having them um transition into a lucid dream and i don't claim to know how that works i'm just describing the method that has worked for me um, and there are plenty of methods out there. Feel free to look them up. Um, but the interesting thing to me is that once they're in this state, in this lucid dreaming state, they're able to communicate. Um, and so they, uh, th- the first thing that they're able to do is communicate that they're actually in this lucid dreaming um, state, right? And they're able to do this, according to the article, 26% of the time, which doesn't sound, um, you know, that. Uh, what's the word? Uh, significant? Is that the word? I hate yeah, using I mean, the significance if, word. If, if it feels like a low percentage out of like the 57 sessions they had, right? But that's, that still seems high to me for some reason. Because what you just described, I've one, I've never heard of like how methods that you can actually take to get to lucid dreaming. Shows you how little I understand about it. But that was, re- that was really interesting for me. And I could imagine that could be tough in terms of a like training people how to do it and then having it be associated with a sound and have it work, you know, almost on command. Right. That sounds like a really long process that you described and like a, a cognitively intense one in some ways too. It really is. And, and, you know, I can, I can speak from my experience and, and that's why it's only been a handful of times. And apparently as you do it more and more, it becomes easier and easier sure. to do. But like the first time it took me like two hours to get to that state where I was fully in control of the dream. Um, and, and, you know, from what I've been told, I don't know for sure, right? Because time is is you know it, you're not quite sure what goes on around you in that state. It's it's really weird. I'm estimating two hours. It felt like a very long time that I was sitting there. Literally, I mean, the process is literally relax every single part of your body. Basically, put your body to sleep one part at a time. Start at your toes. Work your way up your body to your head, um, and don't shut off your head. And that's basically kind of the philosophy behind it. Um, wow. and you're basically self med self, uh, hypnotizing, um, to, to, like I said, put your body to sleep. Um, and you know, when I looked at my sleep tracker, I was asleep in terms of, you know, <laughs> actual sleep in terms of the, the sleep tracker, but, um, you know, you're fully in control and, and it's, it's a wild sensation and it's something that, um, I'd recommend everybody try at least once, uh, to, to know what that's like. And, you know, if, you know, watch Inception if you want to feel like, uh, what's the word, inspired for what you um, want to do when you're in the lucid dream. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. That'd be kind of fun. But um, yeah, you're right. This this seems like um, uh, a fairly, fairly intense process to get people to that state. Uh, and especially to do it just a, on, on a command of a an auditory signal. Um, that seems like a lot to me. 
Oh yeah. That seems like so much to be able to just dive into based off of that. But I, I mean, obviously they had enough of a training paradigm set up where they, they felt like it was possible. Um, and it's funny because the way that you describe it, because this is completely me imagining things. I don't know a whole lot about sleep science, but I could almost see how if you were in that much control and like if you're going through all these steps to basically allow your brain to be awake and you're having to think in terms of like how do sensations feel. Like you said, thinking of what sand feels like between your toes. In some ways, that makes me think you're very, very alert and potentially since you're like in a in a sleep state hearing stuff outside of your your like sleep state if it gets into you I, like into your consciousness i would imagine that you would be able to interact with it right so if you heard things like what is two plus two you would be able to figure out and communicate that back out um which it, which again kind of blows my mind because how would i how do you bridge the gap between communicating back out because, I mean, technically, your face right. should be pretty much asleep. And so I guess that's why they're looking at isocods and also, like, facial movement as well. Right. And, I mean, I, I'd imagine I, – I can't uh, skim the entire article right now, but I, I imagine that they've trained them how to respond. Like, um, you know, they're, they're taking a, a variety of, of different methods here. They're looking at EEG. They're looking at um, isocods, like you said. They're They're looking at – um, facial muscle contractions. Yeah. So, I mean, they're looking at a, a couple different things here. Um, and, you know, something to keep in mind as we go through this article, too, is that this is interesting. And this is... Uh, it's an interesting headline. Uh, and I think that right now is almost all it is um, because of the low numbers that we get here. So can we go over some of these numbers? Because I, I really... I feel like it's important to talk about these. So um, you're you're looking at 57 sleep sessions. Um, we're talking 26 percent of the time participants are able to signal that they've entered that lucid dreaming state, um, and this is through eye movement, right? In in these successful sessions, so you you know you're talking 26 percent of the time, 57 sessions. What is that? 57 by 0.26 got my calculator up here uh, anyway uh the the idea here is that um looking at it so 14 times out of this 57 sleep sessions uh they're able to successfully do that so of those 14 sessions they were able to uh get at least one correct response um to a question via a dreamer's eye movements or facial contractions nearly half the time um so this is so I, I I what I'm hearing is that seven out of fifty seven you're able to get a correct answer because you're thinking half of that twenty six percent does that make sense yeah am I following this math correctly so seven out of fifty seven times you're able to communicate with somebody one time um. And so overall, out of the 158 times they tried to communicate with a lucid dreamer, they got a correct response rate of 18%. That is very low. Um, the most common response, around 60%, was no response. Yeah. So to me, this is a sensational headline with an interesting base of of philosophy here that may someday result in... in um, an interesting finding, but right now, it, to me, it seems kind of like 
oh, we had a breakthrough. We're able to communicate in some cases. Yeah. And, you know, how can we optimize that in the future? What does that mean in the future? You know, can can we um, train ourselves to listen for a cue and then activate lucid dreaming by an auditory cue and um, actually communicate with others around us? Um, and what benefit does that have? You know, like... Are you able to get signals from the outside world while you're lucid dreaming? Like, hey, if a smoke alarm goes off, um, are you able to hear that, understand that, and wake yourself up? Um, you know, I'd imagine a, slow, a smoke alarm loud enough would wake you up. Um, I don't know. Like, maybe there's... I, I don't know. I, I just don't know what the, the application part of this is. Can you think of any, like, application for this, Blake? So I can. I think first, though, I... I so you went through the numbers, right? And it... They feel pretty, pretty, pretty small in terms of what they're finding here. And this feels more like just a headline of anything. Um, but it, it's interesting at the end of the article, what they describe kind of that subjective point of view they got from people they talk to. And this makes me think that they're, they're descriptions of what they say. So basically they say from a lot of participants, it's like, I heard it, but it sometimes it was part of my dream sequence. Like you were hearing stuff through a radio. And so maybe in a dream sequence that you're kind of in control of, maybe that doesn't make sense to answer questions that are coming from what you're hearing from a radio, for instance. So that could be why you're not getting a whole lot of interplay back and forth to the outside world is because you're in a dream state and communication's not the same as you would expect in the real world. And I'm imagining you're pulling a lot from your own memory. So communicating with, you know, yeah. stationary objects might not make any sense. So that could be why they see so few like rates. And especially when so many people seem to be recalling hearing things, questions or whatever it may be, even if they can't regurgitate them a hundred percent right every time but application wise i mean i think you've you kind of brought up probably the best application here um, beyond being able to maybe deal with psychological trauma in a more intensive way that could be a really good one for a therapist but i think to some degree that exists now uh, with hypnosis i don't really know though but i think the the concept of like an alarm going off or a smoke alarm going off where you could almost train people to in their sleep, be able to bring in stimuli that are really, really important or could be dangerous to them or that they need to hear and cause them to come out of really deep sleep immediately. Uh, you could imagine like a military application for that, right? Like helping train soldiers to get into lucid states of dreaming. So when they hear specific cues in the outside world, it triggers a response. Um, that's, that's the kind of biggest one I can think of the top of my head. Um, it's, it's right. a cool form of communication though and i think there's just a lot more to be done yeah here's one let's say hypothetically you've created your own pocket reality um in which it takes place as a 60s or 50s uh, sitcom and you and your loved one are there and you know through stop me if you've heard this one you, you watch WandaVision? <laughs> yeah, that's a very like very WandaVision scenario here yeah no i mean right that's coming true. through the radio that's that's what i i kind of feel right so if you wanda can you hear me wanda you know, so like, you know, that's that's kind of what I'm imagining here. And um, she didn't respond to that. Um, they just both kind of stared at it, broke the glass and that was it. Um, so, I, yeah, I, I I think they're on to something here. And I'd be curious to see kind of the follow up studies. What kind of real world application can you have to this when, um, you know, like, let's say I'm, I'm just really struggling for an example here other than being able to communicate with the outside world 
And well, um, I think like the real application is not going to be necessarily the communication part. It's the fact that so much of this is neuroscience based, and so it's going to be understanding the brain that much more. I don't that's know. That fair. There's like a direct like one one to one application of what's going on. Um, but the big the biggest one, if we really want to stretch things out, is potentially understanding brain brain function a little bit better or on a deeper level, and how that would be potentially impacted by doing something like integrating a BCI into your brain. So understanding more about that in a sleep state as well in a wake state could have a really big impact in technology integration. Um, but I'm not sure like one-to-one application wise, what we'd really see here. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it's, uh, it, it is kind of taking that one step closer to understanding how dreams happen. Um, kind of, understanding what happens in our dreams and how they might affect us in our waking hours. Um, So this, something like this could be, uh, I don't know. You know, the article mentions that this could be used to sort of proactively um, improve people's lives through improving their dream state to help their waking habits as well. Um, It could be used for problem solving applications. Um, well-honed skills, spiritual development, nightmare therapy, and strategies for other psychological uh, benefits is what the researcher says. So there's there's some stuff there, um, but I think they're in the same boat as us. They don't know necessarily if there's any um, like uh, like tangible uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Tangible benefit to doing this. It's more um, a, a baseline of of study that we can then take other things from if that makes sense yeah i think like the biggest takeaway if we really kind of want to look at like an application to health and wellness right is if there is a way to be able to because they talk about a training protocol in here where they're almost able to pair lucid dreaming with sound so if you're able to you know create products they're able to help people lucid train themselves to lucidly dream off of an auditory response or auditory stimulus that could be amazing because it could be life changing for people's the sleep that they can get and the type of sleep they could get, and also for like the the waking habits too. So you you're I don't know, really know how it would work, but being able to basically set up an auditory system that helps you lucid dream and then immediately come out of it super refreshed. So that could be something that is definitely integratable into a product sense. Um, but that's that's basically a, a mirror of kind of the the talking points you heard at the end of the article too. Yeah. Anything else for this article, Blake? I think this is interesting. Um, I don't, I don't, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a cool one, but um, I want to see more. Let me, let me put it that way. I want to see more. Any, anything else for this one, Blake? Yeah, the only thing I've got is I would love to know because our Patreons do pick the news. So from the Patreons that selected this one, if there were points that you were super interested in, let us know in Slack and we can always kind of like banter back and forth that way. Because I I would love to know where your head was at from the HF perspective or the design perspective on this story. Yeah, for sure. Uh, And speaking of our patrons, thank you so much to our patrons this week for selecting the topic. And thank you to our friends over at Gizmodo for our news stories this week. If you want to follow along, we do post the links to all the original articles in our Slack as we find them. So join us over there for more discussion. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back to see what's going on in the Human Factors community. Human Factors cast strives to bring you the best in Human Factors chatter every week. We pack news, interviews, reviews, and overall fun conversations into each and every product that we put our seal of approval on. But we can't do it without you. You see, the Human Factors Cast Network is 100% listener supported. All the funds that go into running this show come from the listeners. 
That's why we're giving back to our supporters on Patreon, now more than ever. Pledges start at just $1 per month and include rewards like 24-7 access to our exclusive Human Factors Cast Slack channel, personalized professional reviews, and Human Factors Cast Infinite, a Patreon-only podcast where the topic is Human Factors Etc. We're always updating our rewards, so stop by patreon.com slash humanfactorscast to see what support level may be right for you. Thank you all, and remember, it depends. All right, and we're back. Just want to say a huge thank you to our uh, first honorary Human Factors Cast staff member, Michelle Tripp. Thank you for your continued support. Patrons like you keep the show running. Uh, if you want to become a patron, uh, we certainly have our Patreon. We have a bunch of different stuff up there for you. We are always doing something interesting. We have something almost every day of the week for uh, the people who choose to sh- support the show financially, only if you can, of course. There are other ways to support the show. Um, we also have uh, a couple other ways you can support the show. We have a merchandise store that you can uh, check us out on. If if you're so inclined to, you can even check us out on YouTube. Uh, send us a like and subscribe and, and do all that stuff. It it might not seem like much to you, but it really does help others find the show and um, helps the YouTube algorithms point us in the right direction of people. Uh, so if, if that's one way that you can help us <laughs> as well. So uh, with that, let's go ahead and switch gears and get into this next part of the show. Came from... It came from. Yes, it came from Reddit. This is the part of the show where we search all over the internet to bring you topics the community is talking about. This week, we picked Reddit. If you want to get to the front of this line, that's another kind of perk of our Patreons, uh, Patreon perk, if you will. Uh, <laughs> they get to the front of the line each week. We got nothing this week, but we do post them every week. So if you have something and you're a Patreon, you can get us there. Uh, all right. This uh, week, we have a couple from uh, the user experience subreddit. I think we got all of them there from the user experience subreddit. So um, I am going to go ahead and talk about. So last week, we alluded to having one more that we didn't talk about. Uh, we're going to talk about that one this week. Um, and Blake, I, I know this one really hits home for you. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read this one. So uh, does being a parent limit you from looking into certain roles. One of the big reasons, among many, why I've stayed for five years in my unfulfilling in-house position is because of the stability and benefits. I've had the fortune of being able to make it through the birth of two children and several major surgeries between my wife and I uh, without taking on medical debt. It's not uncommon for user experience or human factors folks to change places every year or two years. When I talk to recruiters, they tend to automatically push a contract or contract to hire and short-term roles until I explicitly state my preference for permanent full-time positions. This is something I often think about as a parent or person where multiple people are affected by the decisions I take with my career. So I wonder how many other parents go about this. Am I wrong for thinking it's a young or single or childless person's game to jump at contract and contract to higher roles. Uh, what about super competitive environments? I've also stayed away from agency roles because I have it in my mind that being a parent can be a disadvantage for me because I'm really uh, I'm a really involved father. Um, edit, I want to add that I'm not suggesting that these questions are concerns only parents have to consider. I can only speak from my own experience. Before I came a parent, 
I was bold. I took a ton of different roles, sometimes overlapping, sometimes under questionable circumstances, and getting ripped off in one case. So, uh, Blake, I, I want to ask you, and again, like you're not a parent here, so no. that's okay. But I want to ask you, are there specific things in your life that um, tend to make you value stability and um, long-term uh, sort of uh, commitment with, with your role? Um, or do you kind of seek that, that uh, jumping thing to thing? Um, and then I'll talk about it from the parent perspective. But I want to hear from your perspective. Like, are there things that limit you? Yeah, so I'm going to avoid that question and answer it in a different way just because I think Good. I'll answer it too personally. Good. Um, but one thing that, I, I mean, all I can do is give my own perspective. It sounds like this person has a lot more experience than I do. So they probably already know this. One thing that kind of tipped me off that there may be a different approach is if you're relying on recruiters to basically tell you what job you, sh you can get. Right. So if you if they're giving you only like short term and contract to hire jobs, you might need to seek out different recruiters that are like willing to take in your circumstances into into value. Right. Um, so if you're only looking for full time roles, kind of only look and apply for full time roles, it may mean that you have to do a lot more of the legwork, I would imagine. Um, but it, this this is also marked as a senior question from Reddit. So I would imagine the other thing to do is lean on your network of people. Because I would doubt that you're the only person in your network circle that is in the UX profession, has kids, and values being a dad as much, if not over the job. So I think there's a lot of diff different ways that you can tackle the issue. Um, another one is hiring people. So you can hire people to help you write a better resume and also help you find roles to look for. Um, I know that there's a couple of my friends who have done that recently and had a lot of success with it even in the last year with COVID going on. So I think there's a lot of different avenues that you could take on. Um, and I, th I think you just have to kind of be in your head made up what you really want out of a job and what you're looking for and know, like look at your own job that even if it's unfulfilling and it's an in-house position, like, are you going to be able to get that same flexibility somewhere else that allows you to still, you know, stay that very active father role. And sometimes the answer is no. I mean, it just depends on where you are and where, how you want to grow in your career and what's most important. But Nick, I mean, the people really would rather hear from you who's actually <laughs> yeah. a parent here. I, I don't know if that's true. I don't know if people would rather hear from me, but my thoughts here are uh, complex as with any um, thing. I, I, uh, look, like I won't, it's going to sound um, risky. Uh, but look, like I, I will take a contract to contract position if it means that I can, uh, further my career and I am certain that, you know, my family will be okay. That's the bottom line. Um, I will take jobs that are less fulfilling to me in some cases. Um, that's fine too. Uh, you know, obviously fulfilling is better, but um, the contract to contract thing is weird because it was something I was very concerned about uh, until I got into it. And actually being um, on a contract currently and and <laughs> having to worry about work every you know at the same time every year is it's one thing. But then also there's many opportunities that come about by doing that contract to contract work. Like you mentioned networking. Um, I have met many people in the contract to contract work that I'm doing now. 
um, that I can reach out to and say, hey, you got anything? Um, that answer is likely yes. And um, because I've made a good impression, it's likely that um, things will work out. Uh, so, and I'm, I'm young, I can take those risks. Um, you know, we're, we're <laughs> thankfully, we're not too much in debt right now. And so if there's anything does happen, you know, I have that financial security that um, not, not everyone has. And I understand that. Um, but, you know, that is something that we've built up over the last year and a half or so, two years, that um, as I kind of took on these contracting roles, we'd know we'd be in a position where it's a possibility that I might be without work for some time. Um, we also have a podcast that we talk about this stuff on a weekly basis. Um, we are staying up to date with a lot of the news out there. We have made a lot of contacts through Slack and through Patreon. And let me just put it this way. I have enough connections to where I wouldn't feel uncomfortable if, you know, when my contract runs out. Let me put it that way. Um, it is always a, uh, it's always a gamble, right? You, you might not get it. And that's tough. Um, and it's especially tough in a COVID world. Uh, but, you know, we're rounding the corner on that, hopefully. And, and um, but overall, I think, I think we'll be okay. And assess at your own risk. Um, but yes, I, I completely agree. Having the family in the equation is an additional piece of the puzzle that I wouldn't have had five years ago. You know, it, um, if it was just me and my partner, it would be more ambitious probably. But right now, yes, they are a central uh, factor. I want to make sure they have health insurance. I want to make sure we're all covered. I want to make sure that we're financially stable, all that stuff. So yes, it's a huge, huge, huge uh, <laughs> consideration um, in terms of limiting from certain roles. No, uh, it's. It, I will say it's a it's a large consideration, but does not limit me from roles. So there's my very long winded uh, explanation for um, the way I see it. Um, it. Do what's right for you is is basically the thing. But like I just told my story. So whatever your story is find out what fits best um and if you want advice if you're listening to the show and want advice from a, another parent um let me know i'm happy to talk uh that's that's always that's that's the thing all right we got uh we, we got two more so i'm gonna i'm going to um talk to you about this one blake because this one i feel like you you said you could talk for hours about this one so this one's gonna be more of the blake show the last one was the okay. nick show this one's the blake show uh, this one's a question for hiring managers or people that have a role in the hiring process. Um, for junior candidates with little to no experience, how does an app made from scratch compare to a redesign? Uh, they go on to say, um, I'm thinking about, uh, I'm thinking of designing an app from scratch. It will be built more ambitious than my redesign projects, but I think it will also be more rewarding. Uh, if you see this on a portfolio, what's your impression? Are there any common pitfalls junior designers fall into when including this? Blake, take it away. Yeah, so I want—I just want to preface this because I don't want to sound like I am some guru, but this is part of my one of my jobs is that I focus on helping junior people that are transitioning into user experience design or research develop their own portfolio. So this is kind guru. of my brand of help, right? So the there's a couple of things here that I would just point out immediately 
And it's and really, it's his second sentence. So it would be a little bit more ambitious than my redesign projects, but I think it would also be more rewarding. That alone tells me you should probably do it. Even if it's not the first thing the hiring managers look at, you may just figure out how to create your best work by doing something totally from scratch. Um, in terms of which one's best for a junior candidate, it's going to depend on the type of job you're applying for. So if you're if you're focused on application design and you want to work for a company that's building a new app, probably better that you can show that you have experience starting with nothing and ending up with a viable product. If you want to work for a company that already has an existing service, either one would work. It may be beneficial to actually have both because you could show that you've done a redesign or you've added you've added in a feature to an existing application which are both valuable to a company that's trying to sustain a product they already have but also showing your creative flexibility and problem solving by creating something from scratch but like if if i didn't read the subtext here and just said just the first part of hiring managers for your junior candidates with no experience or little experience how does an app made from scratch uh, compared to a redesign and from my perspective, I would say that it doesn't matter. What I care about in your portfolio piece is how you talk about it, the problem solving that you're illustrating through what you've done, the final product. And then also, this is like a key thing that I think a lot of people miss out on, is what did you learn from the process? And that can even be failures. Like, did your usability testing just go awful? Great. What did you learn about it and how would you apply it in the next problem set? So... That's really the the big thing here. There's a lot of takeaways, but the biggest part is is it doesn't really matter the piece. Um, it can, in some ways, depending on the job you want and the types of products you want to design. But ultimately, it's it's that storytelling and the end product stuff that's really going to make or break your portfolio and how people look at your your stuff and decide if they want to talk to you or hire you. It's a great way to think about it. Um, I agree with you. I think the only piece I would add is that. Um, if you are not able to do both, do the app made from scratch. Um, and that's because it will include the whole process. And that opens up, if it's a good hiring manager, if they're a good interviewer, that opens them up to the question of, oh, well, how would you approach this project if this thing was already created? Or how would you approach our product since it's already created? Um, that opens them up to that. And so, uh, you know, then then you have an opportunity to show that, hey, look, like I've gone through the whole process. But if I had to jump in at any one of these given points, that's basically the primary consideration I'm thinking of here is um, there's uh, there's a difference from starting something from scratch and and jumping into a product that is already existing. And it's a pretty stark difference. A lot of the times, if you're starting something from scratch, you can have a lot of input into the system requirements, into um, the the vision and all that, uh, you know, with respect to the product. With a redesign, a lot of that is already baked in. And so a lot of the skill set is how you adapt to what somebody else has already deemed necessary. And both are very, very valuable skills to have. Um, and so if you can do one of both, great. If you can't do both, I would recommend doing the one where you have complete control. Um, because, uh, what's the saying? Like having constraints makes you more creative. Um, and so if you, you know, if you get into a project where you have those constraints of uh, somebody else's vision, somebody else's, um, 
requirements for a product, then you're forced to be creative in terms of how you redesign that product. Uh, that's kind of my two cents on that. Absolutely. Yeah. And I would love to know like what they were going to create from scratch. Another like tidbit for that. And this last part I'll say about it is if you can, if you can work with somebody else on a project for your portfolio, that can be really, really helpful, especially if it ends up being something that maybe gets made or if a software developer friend who's developing his or her own portfolio, lots of golden opportunity there, especially if you're doing an app design. Yeah, agree. All right, I'm going to read this next one. Um, we well, This will be the last one for the day. Um, how many pro- portfolio projects do you typically review with a hiring manager during an interview? Uh, the scenario I'm asking about is a first or second interview where you're speaking with a hiring manager or a senior designer or senior human factors person or um, a project manager or something like that, and they ask you to review your portfolio or a project. The whole interview is 30 minutes to an hour maximum. Um, The reason I'm asking is because I've come across advice suggesting a customized portfolio is the best approach to job hunting. However, practically speaking, I've really only had time to review one project during an interview. And if that's the case, a customized portfolio doesn't really matter because you're only going to be reviewing one project. Perhaps the customized portfolio advice is referring to something that is sent with your resume. However, most people still have an online portfolio with some projects available to view. And in any case, there is not much time to review more than one project during a 30 to 60 minute interview. So how many projects do you typically review during an interview? Blake? Yeah, so for me and people that I've worked with both uh my current job and through design labs kind of career services stuff it it varies um my experience with a lot of my students is you're you're basically going to be left up to somebody's looked at your portfolio they've gotten you in the door if you get to somebody who's at the design level they're going to ask you to present one of your case studies um and it's up to you which one so i'm a little confused about the the need to do multiple the only time i could see that happening to you is and this could be a this could be a really good sign it could be a tough sign uh or a a sign of a tough interview but if somebody's done a lot of their homework on you um and they've looked through your case studies and they've got some questions about holes that they see or like they really want to understand your role across like maybe they're interested in you know you've done responsive design you've done app designs and they want to understand like your role in each process um so, but I, I would say the typical thing, especially in a 30 minute to 60 minute interview, you're going to review one product and every time I've ever done it, I've left it up to other people. Um, sometimes I do ask about a specific project, but it's not like, give me all the details, it's like at a high level, tell me the process, tell me the pitfalls type of stuff. Um, but that's, that's from my perspective, Nick, do you have any kind of thoughts about how many different pieces you might have to review? Yeah, I do. Um, I think this is a great question. I think this is something that I think about a lot. Uh, and, and, um, letting, uh, it can be a very dangerous thing to let the interviewer select which thing you want to talk about. Um, especially if that thing that you've done that you've listed on your portfolio was years in the past, I would say, go with the thing that you're most comfortable with the thing that you can talk about for days. It is your passion project. Even if it's from a past job, um, and not your most recent job that you were in or whatever, the most recent thing you worked on, the thing that you can talk about for days 
um, that you are just completely uh, knowledgeable on. So I think if you if you go with that approach, you do two things. You approach this from the breadth and depth perspective. You say, look, I've worked on a variety of projects from X, Y, and Z. And in this project, I worked on this, and my role was this. In this project, I worked on this, and my role was that. And the thing I'm going to talk to you today is about this interesting combination of those two roles where I did X, Y, and Z. Now let me walk you through it. So that way at the very beginning, you kind of talk about the breadth and then you talk about the depth of one. So that way they kind of get a sampling of what you've done um, and then you jump into one, right? You show them a couple pictures of the other things, jump deep into the other one, focus on your process, focus on uh, your mindset, focus on your methods, that type of thing. That's that's kind of my recommendation for that. Yeah, the last bit that I'll throw in here at the end is you, you make a really good point, Nick. Like, definitely pick the thing to talk about that you're the you're the most passionate about, and you can talk a, a lot about, and you've got a lot of insight to. Uh, but also, I would make sure that my entire portfolio is only pieces that I can feel and do that for each one. In the event that somebody does at random say like, I'm really interested in this particular thing, can you tell me more about it? Yeah. You you want to be able to on the spot answer that kind of question and feel like you've got a lot of energy behind it, especially in an interview situation. Yeah, that's a great point too. All right, well, uh, I think that's going to be it for today, everyone. Let us know what you guys think of the news story this week. If you want, you can join the discussion on our Slack or follow us all over our social channels at HFactors Podcast. If you want to send us an email, you can do that. Show at humanfactorscast.com. If you like what you hear, you want to support the show, there's a couple ways you can do that. One, you can leave us a review on your podcast medium of choice. Two, let your friends know about us. Um, three, like and subscribe on YouTube. That helps the algorithms. And four, if you really want to, if you have the means to, you can support us on Patreon, and I promise we give back to you. And of course, you can always reach us at our home on the web, humanfactorscast.com. I want to thank Mr. Blake Arnsdorf for being on the show today. Where can our listeners go and find you if they want to talk about K-pop? If you're looking about, oh my goodness, if you're looking to talk to me about K-pop, you can always find me in the Human Factors cast at Slack, at Blake, at Slack, great, or at Don't Panic UX across the rest of social media. As for me, I've been your host, Nick Rome. You can find me across social media at Nick underscore Rome. Thanks again for tuning in to Human Factors Cast. Until next time, it depends. Spacecraft, railway locomotives, nuclear submarines, healthcare, jet aircraft. These are all examples of highly technical systems and organizations. And all have one particular thing in common. They all involve humans. Humans who want to do amazing things and are using technology to achieve them. They all have something else in common. They have amazing people ensuring that the users who are involved can do what they need to do, are safe when they do so, and have the optimum user experience. These people are Human Factors practitioners, and on 1202 The Human Factors Podcast, they talk to me, Barry Kirby, about what they do sharing their career paths, highlighting their ideas and best practices, and fundamentally raising awareness of our discipline. Find us on 1202podcast.com, on social media, and on your favourite podcast directory, because it's more than just common sense.